I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 40. So we continue now in week four of our uh, series, But God Meant It for Good. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to give a, a word of, of thanks and appreciation to uh, our worship team and to our audiovisual team who work hard every week uh, for, yeah, absolutely, for... Um, providing us an, an environment and, and leadership where we worship. But as we think about that, we also have people on our safety and security team that, that come early and stay late on Sundays. And uh, we were reminded this week as we launched our Awana clubs at Hickson and Saudi Daisy campuses and our university classes at those campuses this week and children's choir and Club 316, which is a new thing at our Saudi Daisy campus. So many people serve each week in and through this body of believers uh, to care well for one another, to invest in one another. They give their time, their, their effort, their energy, and, and we're so grateful for all the different ways that we get to serve with one another and to serve one another uh, so that we can be encouraged and grown so that when we leave from this place, we go on mission into our circles of influence uh, where we can take the good news of the gospel. And so, as you see those folks, give them a word of encouragement and thanks, uh, and then join them somewhere, uh, because there's a place for everyone to serve and to invest in, in this body of believers. And so I uh, want to turn our attention now to Genesis chapter 40 as we move into what will begin to show a, a bit of a circumstantial upswing in Joseph's life. We've been three weeks into some muck and mire of suffering, and we're still there uh, because when we last left Joseph, he was still in prison. And we talked about the bookend of uh, chapter 39, where at the beginning of the chapter, it says the Lord is with him, uh, but he was still serving in Potiphar's house. And at the end of the chapter, the Lord is with him, even though he's moved from Potiphar's house to prison, God's presence hasn't changed. And we've talked about that theme throughout this text of while the circumstances for Joseph are very difficult, yet God's presence is very real. God is at work. God is with him. And as we move into this week four, there are some events that are going to happen under God's sovereign care that are going to put his sovereignty on grand display. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. And so we've got a, a large chunk of the text to work through. And so we're going to do our best to, to move through those in, in a way that is not um, dismissive of any part of the text, but uh, where we can come to it and glean from it truths about who God is in his character that we can apply regardless of where we are in the context of suffering. Because we may be here this morning, you may be here in a place of great ease where things are very good, where things are very convenient and comfortable. And if that is you, then wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, but you may very well be here this morning where it was all you could do to get here. And you want very desperately to be able to sing with full assurance, I am blessed, I am called, I'm healed, I'm whole, I'm saved, and all those things. And to say, I, I know those things to be true, but if I could just get my heart to catch up with what I know to be true. Well, we're, I'm glad that all of us are here. Because the goal of this sermon series is two things. That first of all, that God would be glorified in all of his text and in all of our lives. And that God would be glorified. The other part of that is that we as God's people would be encouraged. 
that if we're in the midst of trial, that we would be encouraged by God's presence, by God's work, by God's sovereign care, by his character, that as we see him at work in Joseph's life, that we will recognize that that same God is at work in my life and that we can be encouraged in that. And that if you're at a place of ease in your life, that you would be encouraged to follow what the Scripture says and to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. If you're in a place of great ease, it may create an opportunity for you to come alongside someone who is in some sort of trial and suffering and be an encouragement to them. And so as we come to this text, that's our goal. First of all, that God is glorified. And then from it, we can find principles and truths that will encourage us to walk through whatever season we're in with faithfulness to him. And so in that, we come to Genesis chapter 40. And I want us to understand some context here in this text because we're going to be introduced to some some new characters in this part of the narrative. There's coming some time stamps that are going to be important for us to remember, and we'll point those out. But we need to understand the context of what's going on. Joseph, still in prison. And so then it came about that after these things, the cupbearer, And the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was in prison. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. And he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. Now there's a very vague time stamp there for some time. They're there for a while. We're not told for how long, but they're... We're given the the context, introduced to new characters. Joseph's in charge of them, and they've been there for a minute. And then the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the jail, both had a dream the same night. Now, if we're familiar with the, the full text of the life of Joseph, we know that this thread of dreams is woven throughout the text. Joseph has some, these two guys some. In the next chapter, Pharaoh's going to have a couple. And the importance of dreams and the sovereignty of God in this particular context, we'll see that. But they had a dream, and both the same night, each man with his own dream and each man with its own interpretation. But Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them. Behold, they were dejected. And when he asked the Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? They said to him, we have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me, please. Now, we're beginning to see the first expression of God's sovereignty on grand display through Joseph's life. Because this is the second time that dreams have come up. It doesn't say either in chapter 37 where Joseph has a dream or in this chapter that God gives these dreams, but every implication from the text is that these dreams are very specific. They're not some random dream that just appeared, but that God put them there because in the first ones that Joseph had, way back in the beginning part of the narrative, God is giving Joseph a picture of what's coming and giving Joseph's family a picture of what's coming. And the way that the brothers act and react to the dreams, that, that, now remember their first initial part was when Joseph told them the dreams, they hated him, they hated him some more, and then they hated him even more. And their action and reaction to their hatred literally put in, in place the, the activities that will lead to ultimately those first dreams being fulfilled. 
And so we see this, this reality or display of God's sovereignty by giving Joseph insight into, first of all, his own dreams in chapter 37. But now as we move into chapter 40, I want us to recognize how Joseph responds when given the opportunity to talk about these dreams in chapter 40 to the prisoner's dreams. He didn't say, well, tell them to me because I'm really pretty good at telling what dreams are about. What does he say? Tell them to me because what? All interpretations belong to whom? God. I want to pump the brakes right here for just a second. This is not a sermon about dream interpretation. We've got the fullness of the scripture. If somebody has a dream, they come and say, tell me what that means. Stop. Stop hard right there. This is not... This is not a a thing that is telling us about the the process of dream interpretation that we're supposed to employ. It's telling us about the sovereignty of God who gives Joseph the ability to understand it. But in this moment, Joseph, we're going to see it again, the consistency of him giving glory to God in this process. He doesn't say, I can do that. He says, interpretations belong to whom? God. So he recognizes God's sovereignty through giving him insight into these dreams. But it's not his, it's God. And so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches, and it was budding, and the blossoms came out, and clusters produced ripe grapes. And now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. Three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. So he hears the dream. God gives him the understanding of it. He gives the interpretation back to the man. It's favorable. And then in verse 14, he asks a request of the man, and he gives us a little bit of insight into Joseph here. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For in fact, I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and even here I've done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon. So in the midst of this long season of trial, we have a little bit of insight into where Joseph is. At no place have we seen Joseph in these long days of of slow days of suffering proclaim to the Lord, your timetable isn't my timetable, so therefore I'm done with you. You told me way back here in what he wouldn't know as chapter 37, but I was going to be in a position where people, my family are going to bow down to me and ain't nobody bowing right now. And you're not working on my timetable. You're too slow. You're too this. You're too that. So therefore, you must not be good. You must not be powerful. You must not be all these things. He doesn't say any of that. All he says is, remember me when you're back before Pharaoh and do me a kindness and mention me and get me out of here. Because he's still in this midst of trial. It says he's the favorite prisoner in the prison, but he's, if you're the favorite prisoner in prison, you're still a prisoner in prison. And you back that up. He was the favored slave in Potiphar's house. But if you're the favored slave in Potiphar's house, you're still a slave. Because all the way through this text, he's not at his father's table. Because when it began, he's the father's favorite son at his father's table. And all through this text, you're going to see all the way 
past where we are today, that even though things are beginning to look up, he's still not home. And there's a longing in him for things to be better. And so when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. I I can only assume there's some sense of eagerness in the baker's desire for an interpretation because it went so well for the cupbearer. And he was like, but you dreamed about three things. I dreamed about three things. He said, in three days, she's going to lift your head, and that just means lift your face and restore your position unto you. I've got three things. Maybe he's going to tell me the same thing. And so I've, I've had a dream about three days, and there's three baskets of bread, and the birds are eating it, and, 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 and Joseph comes back with this. Uh, and Joseph answered, this is the interpretation of three baskets or three days. And you can almost see him go, three days. And in three more days, Pharaoh will lift your head from you. And we'll hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off you. (laughs) I don't want to speculate too much, but you can almost hear him go, what's that? One more time, what? That seems very different than what you just told him. This is the interpretation. It's coming. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand and he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted them. Verse 23. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. If you're the favorite prisoner in prison, you're still a prisoner in prison, and now you've been forgotten again. As we move into chapter 41, we have another time stamp. Now, it happened at the end of two full years. Two more years go by. Between the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41, two years go by. That our real days where Joseph's still in prison, still in the slow days of suffering. Because even though he's the favored prisoner, he's still a prisoner. And he's not at his father's table. And he's not at his home. And now he's been forgotten again. But God gives him these, exercises his sovereignty in his life by giving him insight. And as we move into chapter 41, we're going to see it again in Pharaoh's dreams. So as chapter 41 unfolds, now it happened at the end of two full years that the Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And Pharaoh has a dream about cows and corn. Two dreams. Where seven... Fat cows get gobbled up by seven skinny cows. And seven healthy stalks get gobbled up by seven unhealthy ones. He's troubled. If you pick up in the text, now it came about in verse 8, now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who would interpret the dreams to Pharaoh. Because we already know that. Just a few verses before, Joseph said interpretations come from God, not Egyptian magicians. And so verse 9, look who suddenly pops back into the narrative. Two years later, 
the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. It gives us insight in there in verse 9 that maybe one of the reasons that Joseph has been forgotten because the cupbearer didn't want to mention to Pharaoh what got him in prison in the first place. So he's sort of hesitantly saying, I would make mention of my own offenses that made you furious with me, furious enough to put me in prison. But I see that you're troubled, so therefore... Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement with the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And now a Hebrew youth was with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related to him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to its own dream. And it came about that just as he, was inter- just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, but he hanged him. And so then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and he changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Push pause. Now catch contextually what's going on here. We are years into this season of suffering. He asked the guy, do me a kindness and remember me. And two years later, now he's being called before Pharaoh. This one who had been kidnapped, go back a little bit. He had been thrown into a hole, then rescued from the hole, kidnapped, sold into slavery, serving in slavery, then falsely accused, thrown into prison. The favorite prisoner in prison, but he's still a prisoner. He's there for two more years after he'd been forgotten. And now he's got an audience with the one in Egypt who thinks he's God. And he said, it's been told to me that you can interpret dreams. If there's ever a place in this narrative for Joseph to exalt himself, it's here. I've heard it said that you can interpret dreams. Joseph continually displays the sovereignty of God by giving God credit. Continually. We walk all the way through the text. Back in chapter 40 in verse 8, when the two prisoners told Joseph the dreams, he said, do not all interpretations belong to God? You're asking the wrong guy. Tell him to me and we'll see what God says. Joseph continually displays the sovereignty of God in his life by giving God credit, pointing people to God for what, he's, for what God is doing. So we see it in chapter 40. We see it here in chapter 41 in verse 16. Then Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You've heard it said that, that I can't, it's not in me. It's God. I can't do it. God can. As we move further through the text, we're going to see this. And so then in verse 17 and following, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. And in verse 25, we see Joseph saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now remember contextually and culturally what's going on here. In Egypt, who is, who is God? Pharaoh. 
Joseph, who just got pulled out of prison, shaved, showered, and changed clothes, says, God is telling you what he's going to do. The dream that you had, here's what it is, and God is telling you what he's going to do. In the biggest stage in Egypt, Joseph gives glory to God. He doesn't try to glorify himself. He doesn't try to reposition himself. He doesn't try to use it as an opportunity to put himself forward. No, he deflects all glory to God. God has told you what he's about to do. And then he gives the interpretation of the seven lean and seven years of famine, seven years of, seven years of plenty, then coming seven years of famine. And then when we get down to verse 30, or excuse me, verse 32, Joseph pushes further into the, the process and says, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. So he not only says God has told you what he's going to do, but God has told you twice. And because he's told you twice, it's, he's basically saying, hurry up because it's determined the matter's settled, it's going to happen. The determination of it and the execution of it are settled by God. Saying all of this to the one in Egypt who thinks he is God. Remember the two people that he met in prison? They were there because they offended the Pharaoh. One who he knows lost his head and got hung on a tree because he had offended Pharaoh. And where he's in this place where his answer may offend the one who thinks he is God, there doesn't seem to be any hesitation in Joseph's life of affirming the sovereignty of God, that God has not only told you what he's going to do, he's told you twice, therefore it's settled, it's going to happen. And so he he displays God's sovereignty in, in directing credit to God. And look how Pharaoh responds. Joseph not only has the interpretation given, but he presses further into the process and gives Pharaoh a, re, a response. Now look, now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce, the land of Egypt, in the seven years of abundance. And let them, all, let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food come as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish during the land or during the time of famine. And so the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Pharaoh, recognizing the one who claims to be God, Pharaoh recognizing that in Joseph there is some sort of divine work. He's not saying that Joseph's a divine. I'm not saying Joseph's divine. But we're all recognizing that the sovereign God, the one true God, is working in and through his servant to show his glory to the one who thinks he's God. To the point that Pharaoh says, is there not one in this kingdom who has this divine spirit? 
But this is not new to this process. If we look back, remember when Joseph was in Potiphar's house and God blessed and gave favor and and Potiphar's house was blessed and even Potiphar recognized that his house was blessed because the God of the Hebrews that worked through Joseph. First priority of this sermon series is that God is glorified. And we see that God's glory and his work is all over this text. Now we can push forward several years into the book of Exodus when God begins to reveal himself through the plagues where he puts himself in opposition and overcoming every one of the Egyptian gods. God's glory on full display here and through the life of Joseph, through his sovereignty, giving him the interpretation of the dream because he's telling Pharaoh what's coming. Here's how to fix what's coming and prepare for it. And Joseph's recognizing it's not my wisdom. This is what God is giving me to tell you. And so look how God uses these trials to position Joseph, and we're going to see why in just a moment. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, again, recognizing the work of God, since God has informed you of all this, there is no, no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I see you, or see, I have set you over the, all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold, gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride sec- in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. And moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh named Joseph, and I've been working on this all week long, Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him Azanath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. Press pause. Time stamp. 30 years old. Chapter 37, how old is he? 17. Some time has passed. His trial is not brief. His trial is not yet over. His circumstances are a bit easier, but he's still not home. He's second in charge of Egypt but he's still not at his father's table. He is in a position of comfort where his circumstances are better. He's been given a wife. He's been given responsibility. He's revered by the people, but he's still not home. And so God is using his trial to position him for God's glory. And he's even using Pharaoh's trial to position Joseph for God's glory. Now, Brian, you might say, Brian, why why are you saying God's glory? If we push on through to the end of the book of Genesis, on into the book of Exodus, we know that, fast forward a little bit, this position that Joseph now has is going to be ultimately the thing that God uses to save Joseph's family. Because as we move on through the text, his brothers are going to come down there to buy food. And there's this wonderful engagement that he has with his brothers and ultimately with his father that he's restored with his family. 
But all of this is God working to keep his word to Abraham. There's a famine coming. People are starving. God sends Joseph to Egypt to work through all of this suffering to get to this position to be able to provide for his family so that God will ultimately fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham way back here in in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a father of nations, father of multitudes. And at the time, how many children did Abraham have? Zero. But we jump ahead about 38 chapters, moving on into the book of Exodus. And there's, this is going to be post-Joseph when he dies and he's taken and buried. After he has literally saved the nation through God's provision, God's wisdom, there's going to arise a Pharaoh that knows not Joseph. And by this time, the people will have multiplied and there are multitudes and the Pharaoh that arises is afraid because if these people organize, they could overthrow us. And there begins the book of Exodus. But God working his sovereignty through Joseph and Pharaoh's trial to bring Joseph to this place to be able to save not only the people of Egypt but his own family All of this an exercise of God's faithfulness to keep his word that will one day end in the coming of the Messiah. That is God keeping his word not only to Genesis 12 but all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where he says one day there will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. All of this text, all of this narrative of Joseph's life lives in the grander picture in the the narrative of Scripture of God's redemptive work to bring all people in, in all things glory to himself and to reconcile the world himself through Jesus. So God using these trials to position Joseph to accomplish his purposes because in this ultimately God is glorified. Ultimately God is glorified. Now we see that in the larger picture, but I want us to see how Joseph recognizes that in the immediacy of his context. As Joseph exercised these things and does all these things and gathers the food, and verse 50, now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. Now, forget doesn't mean he's mentally lost track of it. It just means he's, he's moved from it. He, he's not saying, how did I get to Egypt again? But he's moved from the place of suffering to recognize God's faithfulness. Forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And so he's made me forget. And the second he named Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph is glorifying God because here as... Some of these pieces are beginning to make sense. He's recognizing the work of God. And in the blessing of these sons, 
He gives glory again to God of the work of God, the faithfulness of God, the, the healing that God has brought to him in, in what he's done. But he says that God has made me fruitful in the land of my what? It's open book. I read it 40 seconds ago. Affliction. Does it say in the land of my blessing? The land of my affliction. Because he's still not home. At this place, he's still not restored to his family. He's second in charge in Egypt. There's nothing for which he would desire that he would lack. He has literally saved the nation as God's used him to bring wisdom in that plan of storing up food during the years of plenty and in abundance when we're moving into famine that he's literally going to to save the nation. Surrounding nations will come to them to purchase food and we're going to see some incredible things as you read ahead through the next several chapters. But he still refers to it as the land of his affliction because he's still not home. He recognizes God's faithfulness in his land of sojourn. And so as we come to some conclusion for this part, while we still live in the land of our sojourn, because this is not our home, this is temporary. For followers of Jesus, we are longing to be home with him, but yet we still live in this place that is that is marked by the fall. We live in this imperfect world where suffering exists, where people have sinful choices and those sinful choices bring suffering and sometimes we make sinful choices and bring suffering and sometimes suffering is punitive, sometimes it's not, but it's always purposeful. How do we then live if the same God that is at work in Genesis 39 and 40 and 41 is the same God that is at work now and he is unchanging, then what are some things that we can learn from Joseph's life to endure well? And there's a little bit of repetition from what we talked about last week, but the principles are still the same. First of all, I want to encourage us to be patient. These chapters, we read them quickly, but they take a long time to live out. We're just up to this place and we've been 13 years now into this process for him. His trial was not quick. But God is good. God is faithful. The Lord is with him. We see that over and over again. And we see Joseph responding and acting and reacting as one who genuinely believes that God is with him. And so be patient as God is at work because the same God that is sovereign here is the same God who is sovereign over our circumstance. And now you might be saying, well, well, how? Let me give you a word of exhortation and a word of encouragement. The exhortation is this, don't try harder. Do not try harder to be patient. Walk more intimately with Jesus and he will make you patient. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience. Don't try harder, just walk closer. Even when it's hard to pray, pray. Even when it's hard to be in the Word, be in the Word. Even when it's hard to pray, pray. Even when it's hard, be in the Word. Even when it's difficult, be in the company of other believers. Because if we're in the midst of trial... 
We need God to work and we need the company of his people. That we can love each other well and bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So be patient as God is at work. And in that patience, allow him to help us be faithful. At no point in this text do we see Joseph raising his fists at God, saying, I've had enough, you're working too slow, I'm done. Patient faithfulness. And the way that we are patient and faithful is to trust and rest in him. Because he is good. He is faithful. He has never abandoned us. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promised, Jesus promised that when he left, he said, it's to your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. And it's not just the helper who is with us, but who is in us. So if you're in the midst of trial, walk intimately with Jesus. Intimately and authentically. Because we know from Joseph's life, remember back in verse 14 when he made the request, just remember me when you go to Pharaoh and do me this kindness and tell him about me and get me out of here. Joseph is not a superhero. We've got no indication that he enjoyed his suffering. But what we have indication of from the text is that he was faithful in the midst of it. So be faithful. Be patient. Trust and rest in our God who is good and faithful and present and sovereign and who is indeed at work for his glory and our good. Let's pray together. Father, today as we gather, I'm sure there are people in our gatherings today who, for whom life is really good right now, and I'm thankful for that. Thank you for the way that you have provided, the way that you have blessed, the way that you have worked and, and brought a season of ease. Lord, we thank you for that. Recognize it comes from you. Lord, there might also be in our church family uh, folks who are really wrestling with trial and this season of life is, is thick and hard and difficult. Lord, thank you that you are faithful, that you're at work, that your character is unchanging. Whether we have a season of difficulty or a season of ease, you are unchanging. And Lord, right now I pray that, that you will indeed be glorified in our lives and that you will encourage us as your people. And today, will you draw us close to you? That those who are enduring trial would be encouraged and that those who are in a place of ease would be sensitive to those around that they may bear one another's burdens. And in all these things, we ask that you'd be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.